On this edition of the program, we're going to talk about Tim Scott's mystery girlfriend, the history of marriage and kids in the White House, Mitt Romney walking away, and a book review of Newt Gingrich's March to the Majority. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Everybody to the politics, politics, politics program for September 15th, 2023. Your old pal Justin Robert Young joining you from a cooled down Austin, Texas. Oh, sweet Lord. If we can be only in two digits for the next few months, boy, would I be pleased until we get into single digits <laughs> in February. Oh, I'm excited for good weather. I'm excited to walk out, maybe get a light jacket on. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I'll tell you who's going to be getting cozy this uh, holiday season. Tim Scott, South Carolina senator, candidate for president of the United States of America. He is the only person on stage during the last debate that had a distinction. No, he was the only black man, but he had another distinction. He is unmarried. And that was the subject of a Washington Post article called Tim Scott's Girlfriend. Tim Scott allegedly has a girlfriend for which he would not divulge her name, nor would the campaign make her available to the reporter who was talking to Scott on the subject. Scott was a part of this article. The author makes it very, very clear that he is not insinuating that Tim Scott is gay. Oftentimes, that is what you are saying when you are saying that he's a confirmed bachelor but rather that he is intensely secretive and somebody that through much of his adult life was a proud advocate for adult abstinence speaking to young christians that it was worth the wait well as it's turned out uh scott was not able to wait so long asked again later he said you know, he wished he had the same kind of courage to his convictions, which means he's, you know, done it. Here's a quote. Uh, this is speaking uh, about Tim Scott's campaign manager. To Casper, who previously served as Scott's chief of staff, has told me last year that, yes, there were times in his career when Scott fretted about, quote unquote, the optics of not having a spouse. More recently, however... She had told her boss not to worry about it. Honey, it's 2000 whatever. You're fine, she recalled saying to Scott. She had told me similar last fall. That's old school, she said about needing a spouse to run for president. We don't operate that way anymore. The story continues. It's true 
that remaining single deep into adulthood is not as unusual as it used to be. In 1980, only 6% of 40-year-olds had never been married, according to Pew Research. But in 2021, that was 25%. In politics, a family tableau remains core to the optics. The Republican primary field includes a conservative variety pack of wife guys, such as Ron DeSantis, who reportedly changed the way he pronounces his last name to the way his wife Casey prefers saying it, and Mike Pence, who reportedly won't eat alone with a woman, unless it's his wife, Karen. And although there have been unmarried candidates for presidents over the years, including other the other Republican senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, in 2015, you'd have to go all the way back to Grover Cleveland in 1884 to find a bachelor who won. By the way, Cleveland also had a really, really nasty accusation against. If the accusation about Grover Cleveland came out in 2023 on Twitter, boy, it would make Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher feel secure about their positions. It was ugly and apparently not true. But I don't want to get into it. Just look it up. It involved the R word. Moving on. Back to the story. Before that, there was James Buchanan, who stayed single after winning in 1856. Uh, And James Buchanan was, (laughs) I mean, gay is a gay thing. A thing that's gay. That's supernaturally gay. Charged by ancient magic. Gay. His confirmed bachelor roommate were referred to, I believe by Andrew Jackson as miss Nancy and aunt fancy. (laughs) Uh, And then of course don't, uh, you don't have to, you know, scratch the surface of the internet too hard to get a bunch of rumors about Lindsey Graham, but Tim Scott is not gay. All right. Tim Scott allegedly was dating the owner of a DC era lingerie store called bits of lace and now has a girlfriend. And aside from all the jokes about my girlfriend lives in Canada, you don't know her. She goes to a different school. The element of the story that I wanted to focus on was the shifting dynamics of how much we expect politicians to be that model Rockwell Americana painting. Supportive wife, two kids. Of course, the gender flipped side of this is also interesting. Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States of America. I remember one time I was talking with uh, uh, my friend Tamar. He used to work on this show. Um, We were going over all the different candidates that were running. And I said, you know, Kamala Harris is getting a lot of attention. She said, she'll never win. I said, why? Shouldn't have kids. Moms don't trust her. And that was a telling moment. uh, uh, And it was something that is obviously not on my radar. I don't know how much that is accurate to other people, but obviously there is a general trend of how life goes. And if you are aberrant to that, there are questions. So I went back and did the research and I wanted to look for presidents what is the average age and number of kids that they come into the White House with? So we have John F. Kennedy. I went from Kennedy on. Uh, Kennedy had Carolyn and JFK Jr. JFK Jr., by the way, one month old. 
Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. Lyndon B. Johnson came in with two kids. Richard Nixon came in with two kids. Gerald Ford came in with four, the oldest 24, the youngest 17. Jimmy Carter had a 30, a damn near 30 year old son. Although his youngest was nine. Carter getting it done well into his latter years. Ronald Reagan came in with four kids, one from a previous marriage, or sorry, two from a previous marriage. George H.W. Bush came in with five, five, one of them, uh, uh, the sixth was deceased. Bill Clinton begins this new trend of less than multiple kids. They bring one darling daughter, Chelsea Clinton, age 12. George W. Bush comes in with two 19-year-old twins. And twins! Which now you look back at it, and like, the Bush twins only really got into trouble toward the end of their uh, their, their, their time in D.C., but you got to imagine they were, they were running wild. That seems like a recipe for disaster. To bring two 19-year-old <laughs> young women into a situation like that when you are the leader of the moral majority. Barack Obama comes in with a two girls age 10 and 7. And then there's the panoply of Donald Trump offspring. The oldest, Donald Trump Jr., age 39. The youngest, Baron Trump, age 10. They were from three different women. And then, of course, Joe Biden bringing in Hunter Biden, Ashley Biden and Naomi Biden. And then, of course, there's Joe Biden bringing in Hunter Biden and Ashley Biden. Bo Biden, of course, had died previous. That makes the average age of a child of a president at the point of inauguration 21 years old. And that has obviously skewed older and older as older and older people have become president. The oldest child that has come into the White House is Hunter Biden at 50 years. And the youngest, the youngest child of a president is John F. Kennedy Jr., who was born one month after his father was elected, meaning. He was alive for the inauguration, which means that Tim Scott has until February to marry and impregnate his so-called girlfriend, and he would at least meet the minimum criteria for being a standard president of the United States, a married father <laughs> coming in to the White House. Let's take a look around the rest of that stage, by the way. Vivek Ramaswamy has, was married in 2015. He has two children under three. Ron DeSantis married in 20, uh, sorry, 2009. He's got three children under six. Nikki Haley is married. She has two children, both in their 20s. Mike Pence married and also has two adult children. Chris Christie is married with four children between 20 and 30. So I'm going to zag a little bit on this because the, the tenor of the post piece, 
which I think is good. I, I like this kind of stuff about presidents' lives. I do think we need we, the the question. The tenor of the post piece was: Does this matter? Does it matter? You want to know what? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say you're the most powerful person in the world, and the American people. I don't know if they have a right. They have a right to ask about your personal life. The press has a right to ask about your personal life. Because if you're worried about how the public and the press is asking you questions about having about something as trivial as do you have a girlfriend, then how are you going to handle when things are extraordinarily sensitive and you're dealing with things that are far more important? than whether or not you have somebody to snuggle up against on a cold night. So credit to Tim Scott. Tim Scott did not run away from this. Tim Scott sat down with the reporter. I think it probably would have been better if uh, he also used it as a coming out party for his girlfriend. Because there's going to be a lot of questions. I, I don't think once you introduce the idea that he has a girlfriend, that he's going to be able to put that back in the bottle. But we'll see. Maybe he can do some campaigning in Canada. This is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Big news. Mitt Romney is gone. He will not run for re-election, he had this message to say to Utahns. You know, contrary to a lot of expectations, I enjoy my work in the Senate a good deal. The last few years have been particularly productive as I was able to help lead and negotiate the bipartisan infrastructure law, a comprehensive China strategy process, religious liberty protections, a compromised gun safety law, the Electoral Count Act reform, and emergency COVID relief funding. I was also able to help secure key Utah priorities, including funding for Hill Air Force Base and its program to modernize our nuclear deterrent, as well as funding for wildfire prevention, water infrastructure, rural broadband, removal of uranium tailings from Moab, expansion and restoration of our highway and transit infrastructure, and federal studies to save the Great Salt Lake. I've spent my last 25 years in public service of one kind or another. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in. Now, we face critical challenges, mounting national debt, climate change, and the ambitious authoritarians of Russia and China. Neither President Biden nor former President Trump are leading their party to confront those issues. On deficits and debt, both men refuse to address entitlements, even though they know that this represents two-thirds of federal spending. Donald Trump calls global warming a hoax, and President Biden offers feel-good solutions that make no difference to the global climate. On China, President Biden underinvests in the military, and President Trump underinvests in our alliances. Political motivations too often impede the solutions that these challenges demand. The next generation of leaders must take America to the next stage of global leadership. 
while I'm not running for re-election, I'm not retiring from the fight. I'll be your United States Senator until January of 2025. I will keep working on these and other issues, and I'll advance our state's numerous priorities. I look forward to working with you and with folks across our state and nation in that endeavor. It really is a profound honor to serve Utah and the country, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. I once dated a girl from Utah, and I was very, very insistent that I believed that the nickname for the citizens of that state should be Utonians because it sounds cooler than Utahns. So, Mitt Romney, doing the thing, by the way, that I kind of assumed nobody would do. Just say, hey, I'd be in my mid-80s if I ran again. Uh, I'd, I'd like to not do that. It's got a big family, you know, got a lot of people to spend time with. He certainly does not sound like a politician fully leaving the stage the way that he is taking shots at everybody on the way out. But what can you say? What what a what a what a crazy career for Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, the scion of uh, a a model of centrist Republican politics. His father, George, goes on to be a popular governor, rescues one of the uh, uh, Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, is beloved amongst Utah, breaks down barriers as being the first Mormon nominated by the Republican Party for president, loses against Barack Obama because he didn't run a great campaign and got painted into a corner as Mr. Burns when he's like, the most milk toast Massachusetts moderate there is. And then decides to live in Trump's world, gets Donald Trump's endorsement for Senate in Utah wins is thinking about joining the, uh, the administration doesn't. And then becomes a fierce Trump critic yet again, once in future fierce Trump critic. It's, you know, I'll tell you what, maybe we'll have more on Mitt Romney going forward because this is breaking as we are recording this, but uh, I'm mostly shocked that that a politician voluntarily walked off the stage. That being said, the Senate was never his highest point. It was never going to be his highest point. He never aspired to be. The, the number one senator, the lion of the Senate or anything like that. So he has a little bit easier of a time walking off stage. But, you know, I, I'm kind of programmed to believe that politicians don't ever want to leave power. And he's leaving power. I, I believe he could he could have won re-election if he ran. The Democratic National Committee is once again expected to extend the deadline for New Hampshire to comply with new party mandates regarding the scheduling of its 2024 primary elections marking the third extension this year, and it will be the third one to fail. The National Party has been urging New Hampshire to hold its primary after South Carolina's in February, in line with President Biden's revised nomination calendar, which promotes South Carolina to a prominent position due to its diverse demographic, relegating New Hampshire to a shared second position with Nevada. Nevada. Nevada, sorry. 
The stalemate continues as New Hampshire law dictates that it hold its primary at least a week before any others, and the state's Republican-controlled government has been resisting the changes. The discord threatens to escalate potentially sidelining President Biden in the New Hampshire primary and giving way to fringe candidates, which could make for a rough start for Democrats in the 2024 election cycle. Amid this, state Democrats are considering organizing a write-in campaign for Biden to avoid an unfavorable outcome with the deadline for candidate paperwork submission looming on October 27th. Uh, I have not made any secret that I think that Joe Biden, sorry, yeah, Joe Biden's plan to reshape the Democratic calendar is stupid. Uh, They didn't have a plan on how to actually do it. So I guess they're just going to have to have this ugly, disorganized process. But I think it's dumb. New Hampshire really, really cares. And the idea that these states hold an outsized role when you just saw a candidate overcome really bad performances in Iowa and New Hampshire. I don't know. Doesn't really make sense to me. Back to Tim Scott. His campaign is urging the Republican Party to alter the qualifications and podium placement criteria for the forthcoming GOP presidential debates, emphasizing the significance of polls from early voting states instead of nationwide surveys. The campaign's suggestion, highlighted in two letters to the RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, proposes that candidate placement during the September 27th debates in California be influenced by polling results in early swing states, like Iowa, which hosts the first primary contest. Jennifer DeCasper, who we had just heard of before, Scott's campaign manager suggested that podium placement based on national polling does not accurately reflect the candidate's standings amongst the voters at this point in the campaign process. She has outlined potential criteria for participation in the yet unscheduled third debate, advocating for a greater focus on performance in early primary states, where, by the way, Tim Scott does marginally better. Not a lot better, but marginally better. This proposal would favor candidates, including Tim Scott and Chris Christie, who are doing better in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, respectively. Dream on, dream on, dream on, dream until your dreams come true. Uh, Yeah, that ain't happening. Uh, and, and also, what are you doing? Shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. You're going nowhere, right? They want more time, but as long as there are eight people on stage, if anything, they should be looking to tighten those restrictions. Shake loose some of the Burghams and the Hutchinsons. And that is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at our $3 level. You get two bonus podcasts per week. And at our $10 level, you get your name right at the end of the podcast. Podcast. Come on and join us. The water's fine. Take politics seriously.com. I have promised to you, the dear listener of this program, that I will be reading a lot of political books. From now until the election, I want to be juiced to the gills on campaign and political knowledge. I don't want anything to fall through the cracks. 
And I began this pledge when I was uh, scrolling through Audible and I saw a book about a time and place that I find fascinating. And that is the Republican Revolution in 1994, as led by Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich is a fascinating figure to me, and this book is essentially his political memoir. He's written many books, including many fiction books, but this is the sort of step-by-step guide from his perspective as to how he not only won his congressional seat, but how he very slowly built a coalition around him and reshaped the mood and tenor of the Republican Party to go from a permanent minority to a position where he could dictate to Bill Clinton how legislation was going to happen. And of course, that all leads to flipping the uh, House for the first time in 50 years, in 1994. The book is very Newt Gingrich, for (laughs) better or worse. And I found it to be better. Because it is a very open and honest campaign and political strategy book. Oftentimes, political books are as much about myth making and myth building as they are about the nuts and bolts. And what I really care about is the nuts and bolts. So if you are interested in things like the franking abilities of sitting congressmen, that is the ability to have the government pay for mass mailing to their constituencies to quote unquote update them on the work from DC, which also happens to look like campaign literature. Then this is the book for you. If you are interested in hearing about how Newt Gingrich put together a book on tape explaining new Republican candidates for for the House how to run and comport their campaign. This is a book for you. And if you would like to have a book that features Newt Gingrich himself admitting how intense, if not annoying, it is to be in the orbit of Newt Gingrich, then this book is for you. I will give you an example. Newt Gingrich ran for the House in uh, the Georgia 6th District twice before he was successful. And at a certain point, he admits that the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, the nationwide arm that helps strategize and dole out money to various different candidates, called Newt Gingrich and said, Newt, we're not going to take your calls anymore on unsolicited advice on how to run national strategy until you win your own race. (laughs) Which means Newt Gingrich had been calling them and offering them unsolicited advice for so long and so frequently that he had to be told, we're not taking your call anymore. The real reason why this book is written, and it becomes pretty clear as you read it, is that he is offering unsolicited advice. Unsolicited advice to not only Kevin McCarthy, but also the Freedom Caucus. He is very critical 
of the Freedom Caucus. Newt Gingrich says that 80% of people in Congress are pretty good to work with. About 15% are difficult to work with. And 5% are total idiots that are impossible to work with. He then uses that breakdown to say, this very much explains what Kevin McCarthy has to deal with in this Congress. Newt Gingrich is a huge McCarthy fan. He believes that McCarthy is a good politician and that he is going to steward the Republican Party in the right way. But he offers a wizened perspective when it comes to insurgency. See, the model for Republican insurgency in the House is Newt Gingrich. He was somebody that took a very aggressive tone toward the Democratic Party and, in his mind, instilled a little bit of a backbone. From Newt Gingrich's perspective, the Republican Party had become very, 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 very used to being the permanent minority. They didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to get over their skis and try because trying could mean failing. And it was easier to just take a position where Democrats made big, bold plays and then Republicans were the mean old scolds who had to pay for it or cut things so the money would be right at the end. Newt said, no, we are going to create a list of things that have broad bipartisan approval that Democrats won't touch. And then we are going to hammer them on that. We are going to take every opportunity to bite back at Democratic rule. And eventually the people will be on our side. Of course, this winds up culminating with the contract with America. And we go from there. It is because of the Republican uh, revolution led by Newt Gingrich that we had, I think for what, a couple of years, at least the outline of how a budget would be balanced. That was part of the contract. So as we move into another impeachment situation, and by the way, Newt Gingrich says that it's one of the lingering regrets he has that he believes he misjudged his words. He misjudged that the American people would not focus on the legal side of President Bill Clinton lying under oath and instead would fixate on the sexual side. That was something that Bill Clinton used particularly well. And that reaction, the fact that an impeachment inquiry did not benefit the impeachers, has only followed for previous other years. The impeachment inquiry did not help the Democrats with Donald Trump. And I don't believe that the Republicans will be helped by trying to impeach Joe Biden. The Biden administration is going to close ranks. And it is Newt Gingrich's own words that the more you are not talking about broad-based popular things, the less favors you are doing for your own party. I don't know how much anybody was asking for Newt Gingrich's opinion on stuff like this, but it is interesting. If you're a political junkie, then I would recommend you read it. The next book that I am currently reading and I will review when I am done is The Last Politician 
the newest book about Joe Biden. And I've got some very strong initial feelings. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show was edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to email the program, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Twitter is px3tweets. And Justin, our young for me. You can find me live on the internet, px3live.com. The podcast page is px3podcast.com. Of course, you can support me with a one-time donation. PayPal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And you can, of course, send me a check. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas 78715. If you would like bonus content, you can do that. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show. It's part of the Titanic $10 tier, including Ye Old Pinball Shop, John, DP4 Bongo, Sam, John, Edwin, Kathy Mack, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Brian, Edison, Jeremy, The Dog Checkers, Sarah Jeannie, Matthew, Dr. G, His Nerdiness, Charles, Neil, Darren, Idris Arslanian, Berkeley, Stephen, Nomadic, Terran, Molly's Delightful Demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Brad, Bassam, DeLazer, Nick, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Utah, Jimmy Montana, The Gen, D. Really, Chopper, and Andrew. If you would like your name read on the program, the only place to do it is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I hope everybody has a good weekend. Uh, I'm glad that the weather has cooled down a little bit, specifically in my neck of the woods. Let's hope. Let's hope that the Steelers can do a little bit better. Although I guess I'll talk to the uh, patrons uh, Sunday before the Steelers game on Monday. All right. Have a good time. Till next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.